0: I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1. Uh, Today will be an unusual sermon. uh, And so I really encourage you, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to be able to pull that out and use that, uh, which I guess that's not unusual. I want you to do that every week. Uh, But um, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis together and looking at multiple verses in the book of Genesis. And so I'll try to lead you along in that study. Uh, Also, uh, before I formally begin here, there's a handout, and that handout is in your music packet. And so if you look at the inside of that handout, there is an outline for the book of Genesis that I'll be referring to later on in the sermon. That's for you to take home. You can keep that in your Bible. That's going to guide me along the way in our series on Genesis the next several weeks. And uh, there's actually some homework for you to do uh, this week if you could read through Genesis. and. Look, uh, answer some of those questions I have there on that handout. I think that would uh, make this even more meaningful, you, f- meaningful for you as we work through these things. So today I want to look at Genesis with you. Uh, the book of Genesis is unique. Uh, it is unrivaled by any other piece of literature in the entire world. For in this book, we will learn the authoritative account of the beginnings of everything. Now, with its unique place in the Holy Scripture, the book of Genesis has drawn constant attacks from the world. The opening chapter of Genesis, for instance, has faced unrelenting attacks by people over the course of the last 150 years or so. The scriptural assertions of Genesis chapter one are quite clear. There is an eternal God. He created everything out of nothing and he did so in six days. That's the clear and plain meaning of this biblical book and chapter. Yet the pressure for Christians to reject the real story of creation is very strong. This pressure, however, is not new. To pressure, as I said, it's been placed on the church for at least the last 150 years. Christians in the early 1900s, for instance, felt pressure to compromise their views of Scripture. This strong pressure even led some uh, powerful theologians like C.I. Schofield to compromise and come up with a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. You see, Christians were feeling the swelling influence and the popularity of evolution, and were trying to correlate Scripture with science, and many of them made mistakes. Now, if we ever feel or face the choice to choose between the Scripture and science. We must stand with Scripture. I love how one theologian described things regarding the Scripture and science. He said this, he said, He said, anywhere the Bible touches on science, it is absolutely correct and accurate. If there is a conflict, it is only between Genesis and certain scientific theories, such as evolution. Nevertheless, he said, they are just that, theories. See, men and women, science, it can be a religion in and of itself. And we will stand with the Bible. Now, amid this, uh, these increasing attacks on the integrity of the book of Genesis, it's my prayer that a study of Genesis Verse by verse, section through section through the book, will incite within all of us a love for and a confidence in the God who stands behind this book. And so I'm excited to look at Genesis with you over the course of the next few months. And today I just want to do an introductory study with you. I want to look at three things. I've got a three-point outline. I just want to expose you to Genesis and, and help you really get an overview, what your appetite for this book. First, we consider the situation of Genesis when it was originally written. We're going to ask here, where did this book come from? And so we start by looking at its author. <clears throat> now technically the book of Genesis is anonymous. If you were to look from Genesis 1:1 through Genesis 50, you would not find a reference to the author of this book. Uh, having said that, however, the authors of Scripture make it very clear who wrote this book. Multiple authors in the Old and the New Testament attribute this book, the book of Genesis, and really the entire Pentateuch, to a man by the name of Moses. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself on several occasions cites text from the book of Genesis claiming that Moses was the author. And although there are strong claims made by all the biblical authors regarding Genesis and Moses being the author, that has not stopped liberal and critical scholars from rejecting Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch for now more than 100 years. You can do a lot about the authorship of Genesis. If you're in an ABS class, you might dig into this a little bit deeper. But for me, it's pretty simple, okay? I like to keep it simple in a sermon. If I have to choose between the authors of Scripture and what they say about the authorship of the book of Genesis and liberal or critical scholars, I'm gonna choose the authors of Scripture every time and I'd encourage you to do the same. Now, it may be that Moses had some help near the end of the the Pentateuch, like in the book of Deuteronomy, when when there's writing about the death of Moses. I think it'd be hard for Moses to write that. I think maybe someone like Joshua coming behind him filled that in. But when we talk about the authorship of the book of Genesis, I wanna talk about Moses being the author of this book. So Moses writes this book, but for whom did he write it? I think it's good to think for just a moment about his original readers. Who were they? Who was he trying to address? I think perhaps Moses started his work on the five-volume book of the Pentateuch when he was going through the wilderness and the wilderness wanderings with the children of Israel. Remember, they had left Egypt, and they were wandering around in the wilderness for over 40 years. I think Moses may have begun crafting the Pentateuch during that time. As he nears the end of his life, Moses produces this book for Israelites who are preparing to enter the promised land. I think Moses felt that they must be reminded of God's faithfulness to them in the past. You remember a previous generation of the Israelite people did not believe that God could give them the land, and that led to their extermination in the wilderness, and so Moses addresses the second generation that they must not falter with a lack of faith. So he produces the Pentateuch to trace the sovereign and gracious and powerful work of God for them. Uh, having said that right before I, uh, I leave this first point, I will say I think it may have been more difficult for Moses to write Genesis than any other, of the other books in the Pentateuch. And that's because Moses was not an eyewitness of any of the events in the book of Genesis. These events all occur somewhere between 2,000 years before he lived and just a few hundred years before he, he lived. The rest of the Pentateuch, Exodus through Deuteronomy, Moses could write about things that he had experienced. But Genesis is something that God revealed to him. And so with such a challenge before him, it seems very likely that Moses had to do research regarding these 2,000 years or so that are covered in the book of Genesis. Perhaps Moses had some written accounts that he worked with. Maybe throughout the history of God's people, they had passed these stories down in oral reports. Uh, Regardless, I think God led Moses to record these events without any imperfections at all or errors, as this book forms the very beginning of the inerrant word of God, the word of God that is without error in its original manuscripts. Now, the way Moses, I think, arranges the book of Genesis tells us more about what he's trying to do with those original readers. And this is where we get into number two. The second point I have for you is the structure of the book of Genesis. And that's where that outline that I give you in the handout Will be helpful. I, I encourage you to pull that out now and we can talk about that. So, we talk about the structure of the book of Genesis. Uh, Moses arranges the 50 chapters of this book around 10 different family traditions that he wanted to communicate to the children of Israel. After the account of the origins of the world, Moses uses the same expression with very little variation, 10 times as a header for what follows. This expression is normally translated this way in many of your English Bibles. It's translated, these are the generations of, or uh, it could be loosely translated, this is what became of, and then there's a certain person uh, listed. So I want you to see these in your Bible. You're in Genesis chapter 1. After the original creation account, the first one of these is Genesis 2 and verse 4. So turn there in your Bibles. You'll see this first family marker statement. Genesis 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth so from that point on in Hebrew, or, uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, the whole way through the end of chapter 4, Moses is going to tell you what became of the heavens and the earth. That's the first statement that he gives. Look at Genesis 5 and verse 1 for the second family marker statement that he gives here. Genesis 5 and verse 1. A little variation here, but the same sort of sound. This is the book... Of the generations of Adam. In other words, what he's saying here is this is what became of Adam and his line of people. And that goes from Genesis 5 1 through Genesis 6 and verse 8. Look at Genesis 6 and verse 9. You'll see the third of these statements. Genesis 6 and verse 9 it says, These are the generations of Noah. And so from this point, midway through chapter 6 of Genesis, the whole way to the end of chapter 9, he's going to tell you what became of Noah and his sons. And you can continue to find these. I've given you a handout. You can see that there are 10 of these family markers throughout the entire rest of the book of Genesis. He's going to tell you what becomes of Terah, the father of Abraham. He's going to tell you what becomes of Isaac, what becomes of Esau, and what becomes of Jacob. And so in each case, Moses portrays a family history collection where he tells you what becomes of a man and of his children. This is how Genesis is structured. In an ancient document, it could not be any clearer. Okay, and so that's the outline I'm gonna use as we go throughout our time in Genesis. That leads us to our third study. We've looked at uh, the original situation We looked at how the book of Genesis fits together, how it's structured. And then finally, I want to talk to you about the purposes or the purpose that Moses had in writing the book of Genesis. And this is where we're going to get into the book, and we're going to find out some things here. So Moses intends to give us an account of the origins of the world and uh, 10 family stories. But can we learn anything more? Can we go a little bit deeper? I mean, why did he give us an account of creation? And why does he talk about these 10 men? So I think any purpose or theme you have for the book of Genesis really needs to deal with both of these. I think there are different ways you can answer this question. Why creation? Why these 10 stories? But there's one way I wanna answer it with you. And that's by drawing your attention to a biblical theme that you can find in every section of the book of Genesis. This theme is woven through by Moses, and I think it will reveal to us, if you pay attention for the next 10 minutes, it will reveal to us what his predominant purpose was in writing this book. The theme that I want to trace with you is the theme of blessing and cursing, or to bless and to curse. I want to do this with an open Bible, and I want to show this to you in what I would just call the first five cycles of blessing and cursing in the uh, early chapters of the book of Genesis. The first cycle starts right at the beginning, so go back to Genesis chapter 1. At the beginning of our Bibles, we learn that God creates the world out of nothing effortlessly. He speaks it all into existence. That's what the Bible says in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. So look there in your Bible, and we'll read it. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, He said, Let there be light. And there was light. So out of nothing... God made a perfect creation, and it was good, it was very good in some cases. And he places man and woman in the garden to keep the garden and to tend it. You see, God is a powerful king, and so he crafted mankind in his own image to have dominion and to care for his creation. Now, it's in the very first chapter of the book of Genesis that we realize that God did not only give to humanity this special position, this special creation. God also blessed them. I want you to see this theme of blessing and cursing. So look in your Bible at Genesis 1, verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. Again, open Bible right through. I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Verse 27, so God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God, what? He blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is one of the first times This is one of the first times in the book of Genesis you'll come across this word blessing. This word blessing will be found 73 times in this book. That's spectacular especially when you compare it to the number across the rest of the Old Testament. And so God blesses man and woman that's where it all starts in the garden. Creates the world, he sets them up and he blesses them. But then we know the story, a serpent comes Into the garden to tempt man and woman. And they give in to his temptation. So they fall and they bring death and they bring something else with it. They bring the curse. That's the opposite of blessing. They bring the curse of God upon the whole world. As a matter of fact, after their fall, God twice uses the word curse, he curses creation, he curses the serpent and later the ground in Genesis chapter three. So look with me, I want you to see this in your own Bibles. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent's role, the serpent is cursed by God. Look down at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. So here's the first circle, uh, cycle of blessing and cursing. A perfect creation. They're set up as uh, sovereigns over the creation to exercise dominion. God blesses them, but they fail and the creation itself is cursed. But after this fall, I think, and embedded in the curse on the serpent is our second cycle, second cycle of blessing and cursing. It it starts with a promise of blessing to the woman. So look again in chapter 3 and verse 15. He's cursing the woman here. He says, I will put enmity, or I guess he's cursing the serpent here, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You're reading the beginning of this. You you should ask yourself, what is this enmity that Moses is describing, that God is describing here? Is this just that women are always going to hate snakes? This enmity between the woman and a snake, is it? Just that snakes will always have fear for human beings? Is Is it that or is it more than that? And what you realize as you keep reading Genesis and the rest of the Bible is it's more than that. Where God further explains, even in this one text, he explains that the woman's offspring, the seed of the woman, you could translate it, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, while the serpent or his seed will bruise the heel of the descendant of the woman. That is what God is telling us here is there is coming a future offspring from woman who will rise as a wounded victor over the serpent, Satan, and his offspring, and he will crush him. From this promised blessing, you keep reading in your Bible, things spiral out of control. You can see this in the interaction of two brothers, Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4 in your Bible. So you could turn there, just over one page perhaps in your scriptures. Here, while offering a sacrifice, or just afterwards, Cain kills his brother and he replies afterward with the sinister question. You remember what he says? What's the question? Am I. My brother's keeper? This, of course, has God's attention, and he responds in verses 10 and 11. I want you to look at this. Look at Genesis 4: 10 and 11. It says, "And the Lord said, what, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are what? Are you reading with me, You still with me, going through your Bibles? We're trying to figure out what's this book of Genesis about. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your your brother's blood from your hand. So God here curses Cain because of his sin. And he sends Cain away. And Moses then describes that Cain's line, his family, just keeps degenerating. It gets worse and worse and worse. And he traces it the whole way down to Cain's great, 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 I practiced this, uh, three greats, great, great, great grandson by the name of Lamech. I want you to read a little bit with me about Lamech to see how The debauchery in Cain's line just gets worse and worse. Look with me at Genesis 5, verse 28. Genesis 5, 28. You there? There? I appreciate you following through and trying to make sense of this book. Verse 28 When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son. Uh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong Lamech. Go back to Genesis 4, verse 23. I jumped ahead. Don't even pay attention. Uh, don't even uh, pretend like I guess you should pretend like you didn't even hear that, OK? So let's go back to Genesis 4:23. Okay, so we've got a Lamech here. He's the great-great-great-grandson of Cain. What does he say? Genesis 4:23. Lamech said to his wives, that's where we see the first problem. Wives, plural. He's the first man, I think that we're aware of in Scripture he had multiple wives. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Things are getting worse. If Cain tries to cover the murder of his brother with that sinister question, Lamech boasts about killing a man and he writes a poem about it. Things are getting worse. But as things continue to get worse, we come to the third cycle of blessing and curse. Things are getting so bad after Lamech, this Lamech that comes from Cain that Moses says that God knew that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Instead of God looking down on the earth to see that it was good, Moses says this, he says, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. It's not good, it was corrupt. It's so bad in this third cycle that God wants to blot out all of mankind all of the animals and every creeping thing from off the face of the earth. Yet there's a distant descendant of Adam that comes through a different line than Cain. He comes through the line of Seth. He's 10 generations removed from Seth. And this man's name is Lamech as well. It's a different Lamech. And now I invite you to look at Genesis chapter five and verse 28. We read about this Lamech and his hope for the future just as 528, different Lamech. It says, when Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord, what? Has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What we find as we continue to read in the book of Genesis is that this is more than just fatherly optimism here. We learn that Lamech was telling the truth, and that for no particular reason related to Noah's well being or sinlessness, God decides to save humanity through Noah and his sons. Remember the text? And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So, although the flood, I think, is one of the most horrific acts of judgment that has ever been pronounced or experienced on this physical world, we learn also that the flood was an act of grace. God delivers Noah and his whole family through an ark. He not only delivers them, but in chapter 9, in verse 1, after the ark, The waters had receded. He blesses them. Look at Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds much like the blessing that God originally gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth. This feels like a new beginning here with Noah after the flood. It sounds like a new creation, with a new Adam, Noah, who has a chance to serve God. Perhaps now humanity will be better. God has purged all the wickedness from this world. Only Noah and his family remain. Although Noah and his family was still touched by sin. But Noah himself is the one who fails. Just after this, there's a new fall. And this leads to one of the sons of Noah being cursed. If you remember, Noah again fails with fruit. This time it's the fruit of the vine. He sins by getting drunk and he's in a naked stupor in his tent. There's one scholar who described this better than I ever could, his name is Tom Schreiner makes a comparison here. Schreiner said this, he says, just as Adam and Eve were ashamed of their nakedness after their sin, so Noah was shamed by his nakedness. This leads to Noah pronouncing a curse on one of his sons. His his son Ham, the father of Canaan, had failed Noah by by, by not privately guarding his father's honor. So Noah awakes from his stupor. He realizes what happens, and he curses his son. Look down in your Bible at Genesis chapter 9, verse 25. Genesis 9, 25. He said, that's Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. That leads us then to the fourth cycle of blessing and curse. That curse on Canaan leads us to a blessing in the very next verses. The blessings right after this come when Noah pronounces a blessing primarily on his son, his sons, Shem and Japheth, but primarily on Shem. Look in your Bible at verses 26 and 27. He also said, blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, one of the interesting things I think that'd be hard for you to pick up here in this part of the book, if, if you don't know Hebrew, is to understand who Shem is. And in particular, I want you to know something about him. I want you to know what his name means, okay? Do any of you know what the name Shem means. How's your Hebrew today? Do we need to dust it off a little bit? What does the name Shem mean? If you know, go ahead and say it out loud. I think I heard one person. The name Shem means name. When I first came across that, when I was studying my Bible years ago, I thought, man, you know, I just had this really bad reflection on Noah. I thought perhaps he just kind of, you know, he wimped out. You know, parents, remember, trying to come up with a name for your child? Well, what should we call your son? Well, just call him name. That's the name I'll give him, name. Well, Shem's name means name. And the reason that is interesting is because after some genealogies in Genesis chapter 10, we come across another group of people. They're the Babylonians. They're trying to build a tower up to God. They wanted to reach the heavens. And I want you to read with me a little bit about what these rebellious people say. Look at Genesis 11 and verse 4, very next chapter. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a Shem. That's the Hebrew word. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, so at this point, what has happened is God blesses Shem, name means name, but God condemns and scatters these Babylonian people who want to make a name for themselves. You see, they're not interested in making much out of the name of God, of the name of Yahweh. Instead, they want fame for themselves, and so God curses them. But all of this emphasis, then, in the text on blessing and cursing and names leads us to one of the most significant passages in all of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. And it leads us to the fifth and final blessing, curse cycle I want to show you. In Genesis chapter 12, we'll be introduced to a distant descendant of Shem, whose name is Abram. Look with me at verses one through three. The text says, now the Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now listen, verse two. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. See, God does this out of grace for Abram. Not if the Babylonians who are trying to make a name for themselves, but God is gonna establish this person. I will make your name great, keep reading verse two, so that you will be a what? Blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you, I will curse. Here, final cycle of blessing and cursing. The one who dishonors you, I will curse, and in, all of, and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here, five times in this little passage, God decides to unconditionally bless Abram the one through whom the rest of the patriarchs in this book will come. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and the people of Israel. They're all gonna come through this man and this line. That's what the rest of the book of Genesis is about. As you keep reading in this book, what you would realize is that on multiple occasions, God works in the lives of these imperfect men, these patriarchs, to overcome every obstacle to his blessing upon them. On several occasions, for instance, and in various of these patriarchs, God will overcome deceit. They will lie. It happens very soon after Genesis 12. Do you remember what Abraham, what he lied about? Who did he lie about? Say it out loud. Sarah, or Sarai, depending on... He lies about his wife. He lies about her not only once, but twice. So here's this patriarch, this one that God will bless, he will establish, and right away he blows and He lies out of fear. Do you know that sin is reproduced later on in a descendant of Abraham? You ever see this in your Bible? Who also lies about his wife? Isaac, thank you. Excellent. So God is over, gonna overcome this lying and this deceit though and he will provide a way for them all to retain his blessing. On several occasions, the seed of the woman that is supposed to come to produce someone who will crush the head of the serpent is on the brink of extermination because of barrenness and impotence. But God again provides. God does this for three of the patriarchs, according to my count. He does this for Abraham and Sarah, and we know that passage. He does this well for Isaac and Rebecca. He overcomes barrenness there. He overcomes barrenness with Jacob and Rachel as well. I think he does all of this in order to to protect the line of the one who will one day come as a wounded victor, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will crush Satan on the head. Now, even when the patriarchs themselves are about to die, we come across these amazing passages in Genesis. These passages where a father passes down a blessing. We call them the paternal blessing. And he does this to his chosen of sons. This includes not only when Jacob was scheming to receive the blessing passed down through the patriarchs. He was scheming to get it from Esau. You know, And he found a way to, to get this blessing. But it's also true in Genesis 48 and 49, later on in the book, there's sections about this paternal blessing, this passed down from Jacob's sons and Joseph's sons. And men and women, there's honestly so much more I could say about this, but that's what the next several months are for as we go throughout the book of Genesis. I will say what I learned in Genesis chapter 12 here and beyond is that God is determined to bless Abraham and his seed, so that he even at the end, here in verse three, he pronounces a curse on anyone who would stand in the way or dishonor Abraham and his seed. Having worked the whole way through Genesis like this, we come to the place where I want to give you my personal opinion on what the ultimate purpose of the book of Genesis is. And it has to do with blessing. I ask what particular blessing is God determined to give to humanity although they have blown it all throughout this book and throughout scripture Well after the fall in the garden we lost so much We lost the paradise of the garden We lost the we lost human innocence We lost the capacity of never-ending physical life on earth. But I would say this, I think most significantly, we lost sweet fellowship and harmony with God. (coughs) As a perfect and holy God, there was no choice. Sinful men and women could no longer enjoy a close relationship with Him, His wrath would be turned against them and their sinfulness. But then all throughout the book of Genesis, many factors threaten to permanently prevent God's people from enjoying His presence. Yet in every situation, what we find is that God overcomes those obstacles This is what the book of Genesis and really what the rest of Scripture is about. God overcoming the obstacles so that we might be able to enjoy fellowship and relationship with Him again. In Genesis, He overcomes the serpent and original sin. He overcomes their removal from the garden he overcomes the increasing wickedness. He overcomes impotence and barrenness. As you keep reading through the Pentateuch, he'll overcome pharaohs and false, uh, false lands and people who are trying to cause this uh, to be taken away. Later in the Old Testament, we find that God even creates a tent, a tent, a special tent. And later, a special house, that he is established where he will be able to dwell again at the center of his people. Still later in the New Testament, we learn that God's Son came as a wounded victor to defeat sin, death, and the serpent. And in the very end of your Bible, we learn that one day Jesus will set up a new city In this new city, we will see that there will be no more mourning, crying, pain, or death. In this city, there will be a river of the water of life as bright as crystal. In this new city that Jesus creates, there'll be a tree of life with his 12 kinds of fruits. And most importantly, in this new city, there will be God with his lamb at the center of the people who will believe on him. That's how your Bible closes. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3 says this. It says, And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. And so in the book of Genesis... Moses displays God's glory as he begins to overcome the results of human sinfulness through the seed of the woman. May our view of God grow so significantly over the next few months by studying the book of Genesis that no challenge from the serpent or from our culture could ever tempt us to doubt His wisdom and His sovereignty and His determination to overcome all of the obstacles to bless those who will trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the privilege of working through this overview of the book of Genesis. We thank You for what this book will teach us In this brief overview, we're just so thankful to serve such a a wonderful God who's determined to bless humanity with his presence. You you, you wanted to establish a way for the relationship of fallen human beings to be restored. And you do this through the seed of the woman, through her line, through her descendant, Jesus Christ who one day came to defeat the serpent. I thank you, Lord, for this. And I pray that as we study this book closely, that you will help us to, to know more of our God, the more confidence in who you are, and rejoice in this together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.